So every house, um, whatever home you grew up in, every, every different home has different things that they find really important, right? Like you have certain things that were just really important in your home. One of those things that was in my home that was really important, something just really, really high on the scale for my parents was your reputation. They wanted you to have a great reputation. They wanted us to be well known and to have a great reputation with those people that were around us, that were in our community. And they worked really hard with us on this. So they worked hard to help us understand what it looked like to treat people with respect. So treat people the way that you want to be treated. Something we heard in my home growing up a lot. Um, work ethic was something that was really important to my parents. They wanted us to have a really strong work ethic. And so from the moment I can remember my dad taking us, me and my brother, around doing house projects, I had no idea what to do. He was just literally making us stand there, watch him, and then he would try to get us in and like learn how to do these things. And hopefully something of that stuck with me. They also wanted us to really try our best at what we were doing. Um, there was no handing out like, Here's a reward for good grades. It was like, this is the expectation. You're going to work hard for your grades. You're going to get good grades. No reward. Um, I love my parents, but I wish there would have been rewards. Um, <clears throat> they wanted us to be dependable. They wanted, whenever we made a commitment, that other people would know that we're going to follow through. That if we gave them our word, that we could be counted on to be there. They wanted us to think about the company that we chose and to choose it wisely. They're constantly asking us about the friends that we were around and what was going on in their lives and felt invasive at the time. But looking back, I can see they just wanted to make sure that we had good friends that had good influences on us because we are who our friends are. And then they wanted us to have good discernment. The choices that we're making, thinking through right and wrong, they, they wanted us to think wisely and to make good decisions. And so they reminded this, like all this stuff about reputation often, all right? They had this, it was like a broken record of a statement that they would say, every single time we left the house to go hang out with my friends, here's what they would say. They would say, have fun and then make good decisions. Every single time. I could guarantee you as I was about to walk out the door, I was going to say, I was going to hear, hey, Josh, have fun, make good decisions. That was exactly what they were going to say every time. Now, here's my hope. Um, I hope some of this is stuck, right? I hope some of this, the things that they tried to instill me have stuck around in my life. Um, in a lot of ways, we don't really know because we don't eulogize each other until we're gone, you know what I'm saying? So a lot of it's like we hope that these things stuck, but we don't really know. It's not really spoken into our lives all that much. But here's the thing about Jesus. In Mark's gospel, he leaves no question of what Jesus' reputation was with others. We find that in this evening's story, at the very end of the story, Mark reports what others said of Jesus. It says, he has done everything well. He's done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, all the Bible smart people, whenever they see this last part of the, the verse here, um, they all say, they're not just speaking about his ability to heal. There's, there, he's speaking of more. There's more that's going on. And the story precedes this statement at the very end is, that's all about Jesus' reputation. It sheds light on what that reputation really is, how he would, did everything 
excellent and well. And that's where I want us to spend the majority of our time tonight is just unpacking this story because as we do, we're gonna find a few things about Jesus and why he did everything excellently according to those that were around him. So as we can consider Jesus's healing of the deaf mute man, we'll see that Jesus does everything well because one, he's personable. Two, he's empathetic. And then three, he's capable. He's personable, he's empathetic, and he's capable. So we'll consider these attributes of Jesus, of how he heals this man, how he steps into his life, and then we'll end with some application, right? So to refresh us, I'll read the first few verses here um, so we can step in and look at Jesus being personable first. So here's what it says. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, who went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private, and after putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. All right, so when I first read this story this week, here was literally the first initial thought. So I always print out a few different uh, translations of the Bible onto a sheet of paper so I can make a bunch of notes as I'm really thinking through the passage. And so here's literally the first two notes that I took. Why, like a question mark, exclamation point afterwards, and then gross, exclamation point, after I read this passage. Um, like why in the world does Jesus pull this man aside? Why, why is that something that Jesus stops and does in the midst of everything that's going on? Why the poking and the spitting and the touching, right? It's nasty. Why, why is Jesus doing this? Well, the answer is because Jesus is being personable. All right, so put yourself in this man's shoes, the man that's deaf and mute. He's been this way his whole entire life. His whole entire life, he has been deaf and mute. We've all been in middle school, all right? We've all been in middle school. We know how hard it is. So imagine going through something like that, a life stage like that, and these are your disabilities. His whole entire life, he's been a spectacle to others. Think of the mocking and the scenes and the ridicule that this man has gone through in his life. You see, Jesus looks at this man and as these, he's coming and he's begging to be healed, Jesus looks at him. He understands what he's gone through in his life. Jesus looks at him and says, I'm not gonna do what other people have done to you. The spectacle that people have made of you and your disabilities your whole entire life, Jesus says, I'm not gonna do that to you. I see, I see you. I see what you've gone through. I see your suffering. I see your pain. And so Jesus takes him aside. He pulls the man aside because he knows. He sees. He understands. But not only this, this man also struggles to communicate. Now, like, again, just think about this, all right? So we read the physical things that Jesus does to this man, and we think, how unsanitary, right? He spits on his hand and then he touches his tongue. This is COVID. Like, you can't do that. You can't even cough in public. Like, and here we are thinking about this man, Jesus, spitting on his hand and then touching this man's tongue. Like, you don't do that. Like, all those things are canceled. You can't do that. 
And here we are, we see Jesus doing all of this. At this point in time, there's no hand signs that you can do to communicate. Think about how hard it was for this man just to get his point across, just to have any type of interaction with somebody. And so what Jesus does here is he speaks to this man's language, the only language that he knows, which is physical touch. Here's what one Bible scholar says. It says, the man could not hear Jesus, and he was also incapable of verbal communication. So Jesus spoke to him in the language he could understand, sign language or physical touch. The fingers placed in his ears and then removed meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. The spitting and the touching of the man's tongue meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth too. So by pulling the man aside and through Jesus' physical touch, Jesus showing how personable he is to this man. How personable that this man has dignity and he has worth. And Jesus steps in and he ministers to this man where he's at. It's not too low for Jesus. There's nothing that he, he doesn't have to heal him before he touches him. No, Jesus steps into this man's world, steps into his life in order to minister to him. And look, this isn't one in, a one-time instance either. We're gonna look at this story and be like, well, that's nice for that man. It's nice that he, Jesus steps into his world. I, I don't really feel that way in my own life. But here's, the, here's what the Bible tells us. James 4, 8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, what Mark is revealing to us through this story is that he draws near to each of us personably. That he knows what you're going through. He knows what's going on inside of you, not just exterior. And he steps into our world in order to minister to us personally. So let me give you a couple examples, all right? So um, some of you all have heard me say that my wife and I had a couple of miscarriages before we had our first son. Um, so we have four boys now, nine and under. And before we had Seth, we had two miscarriages. And uh, there's just a way that I felt like what Jesus is doing with this man um, we also experienced how Jesus ministered to me and my wife very personably during those difficult seasons. So the first miscarriage um, happened in, we were just distraught. We are in our apartment. Um, I was working for a pastor at that time. His name was Chad Lewis. And um, we just didn't know what to do with ourselves. I mean, we were just a mess. Never gone through something quite like this. And so this pastor came over and I'd, I've never had someone that's kind of like given me the uh, freedom or the okay to feel all the feelings that I was feeling in that moment. Um, a lot of what I had learned in church is like things like anger, like you have to push that down. You can't feel anger. Those, those are off limit emotions. But what he came in into our house and he did, he was like, hey, I want you to read um, the parting of the Red Sea whenever Moses is taking Egypt 
through the Red Sea. He says, imagine you're the people that are going through the parting of the Red Sea. You're walking on the land. You see these huge pillars of water that are on either side of you. You're walking on dry land. Some people at the front may be thinking, this is incredible. This is exciting. They're filled with joy. Some are looking at the water and they're seeing fish that are swimming in between it. And they're like, I don't know about this. There's skepticism that's going on inside of them. Some of them that are at the back, they see the Egyptians that are coming for them and they're struck with fear. And what this pastor said is like, there are so many different emotions that are probably going on inside of these people as they're crossing through the Red Sea and every one of it's valid. And he said, look, in this really hard, difficult season, you have a God that is big enough to deal with all of the emotions that you're feeling inside. And this just ministered to me incredibly well. It's exactly what I needed in that moment. Jesus stepped in and he ministered to me personally. Now, that was good and helpful for my wife. Um, but during the second, second miscarriage, which was about six months later, um, we were in a, a different apartment. We had moved apartments. And as we're in this apartment um, and Cherish is dealing with all the the issues of a miscarriage. One of our best friends came over. <laughs> and uh, man, such a sweet, sweet guy. Um, he came over and uh, here's what he did. He came over, he brought a two liter bottle of Sprite and he gave it to Cherish and he said, whenever my stomach hurts, this usually helps me. Now, is this gonna help a miscarriage? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it's the sentiment that ministered to Cherish's heart so, so deeply this is a guy to the best of his knowledge of how he could step in and enter into her world and love her and serve her in that moment. And he brought something that was usually something that helped him whenever he was dealing with something within the dummy area. And he brought it to Cherish and he said, hey, this usually helps me. And it just ministered to her heart so much because he was trying to step into her world as best as he could. And in that instant, it's as if Jesus was stepping in and ministering to my wife in the most personable way that he possibly could. It brought so much healing in a very hurting time. Two drastically different examples of how Jesus cares for us. But look, he met us where we were at. He knew what we needed. He stepped in and he cared for us, and look, he does that for you too. He's deeply personable. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so when these tough and difficult times come around, he enters into your mess, and he knows exactly what you need, and he serves you in that moment just as he did this man. He does everything well. We can draw near to Jesus, and when we draw near to him, he'll meet you where you're at. That's what Mark is telling us through this first part of the story. But not only is Jesus personable, he's also empathetic. We see this in verse 34. So just a really short little reading here. Here's what it says. So after this, Jesus, looking up to heaven, Mark reports that he sighed deeply. He sighed deeply. 
Now, here's something I've learned about reading the Bible, all right? We tend to read our own life experiences into the, the Bible narratives, all right? So here's kind of what I mean by this, and this is one of those texts where I think we really do this. So um, when we read that Jesus sighs deeply, our mind goes towards something like an agitation, that Jesus is put off by this man, right? We read the, our life experiences into these stories, and we're like, oh, Jesus sighs deeply. Oh, he's probably put off this guy's coming and begging him, and he's trying to get him to do something for him. And we do this in our, because our lives and our needs have been met by others as an inconvenience at some point or another, right? Like, we've brought our neediness, we brought our hurt, we brought the, these things in our lives to other people, and whenever we've done it, at some point, someone has met us with this sense that we're just a bother. Not to get like Winnie the Pooh on you. Um, so we read these things into stories like this, and whenever you see that there's like this deep expression of something, it's like, oh, Jesus must be put off must be put off by that man, but that's not what's happening. It's like actually far, far quite different than what we think or we try to put into these stories, all right? So the word is more often translated groaned, like this groan that goes with a deep, deep emotion. So what Mark is trying to communicate here is it's an expression of Jesus' love and compassion for the man, Jesus, he feels deeply, he has strong grief over the brokenness in this world. There's a groan of desire that all these broken things would be made right in this world. This is what's being encapsulated in this deep sigh that Jesus does right before this man as he's looking up to heaven, about to ask that this man be healed. And this aspect of what Bible scholars, like, so as you're like unpacking this, what Bible scholars try to say about this type of quality of who God is, it's called imminence, the imminence of God, that he is close and that he's knowable, that he's close to us and that he's knowable. Now, this, this whole idea of imminence is only powerful to us if you view it in the light of his transcendence, that God is so different from us and that he's so much bigger than all of us. Now, I think kids' books can sometimes put these concepts the best to where we can all understand them. And so we have this book in our home. It's called, Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is? All right, so we read this book, and I'm, I have a number of different pictures up here because um, I think it just illustrates and kind of puts into perspective just how big God is. All right, so look at these with me for a second. So what this, uh, it's by Robert E. Wells. And so what he does is he takes big things and then he compacts them and then he stacks them and then he compares them to other big things, all right? So for instance, all right, he starts with the, the flipper of a whale. It's called a fluke. And so what he, what he starts out with is just the, the, the fin of a blue whale is more large than most any of the biggest animals that are on the face of the planet. And so he takes this blue whale and he says, he gives a lot of these different facts about the blue whale. He says, if you put 100 whales in a really big jar and then put two of those whale jars on an enormously large platform and then made a tremendously tall tower out of the 10 platforms of the whale jars, that tower of whale jars would look quite small 
balance on top of Mount Everest. So you see this picture, see that little stack on top of the peak? That's what he's saying are all of these whales that are on these like boards, 100 whales in a jar stacked on top of each other, balancing itself on top of Mount Everest. And so he continues on, he says, 100 Mount Everest stacked on top of one another would be a mere whisker in the face of the earth. So you see that little squiggly line that's on top of the face of the earth, that would be all these hundreds of Mount Everest stacked on top of each other on the face of the earth. More than one million of our errs would be fit into the sun. And so you see all these little hundred uh, different errs that are compact into like this net, and then it puts it in perspective of the sun. And if we did that, there would be millions of the earths that could be compacted into the sun. And then more than 50 million of our suns would fit inside the supergiant star Antares, which you can see right here. So they made it like there's the sun is this big orange and they put them into a crate and they put it on top of Antares here. And so the Milky Way is made up of billions of stars like Antares. And so you have Antares right here and then you have all these other stars that are there out in the Milky Way just showing how big the galaxy really is. And then Milky Way is one of billion of galaxies. And so then you see like this whole idea of the different galaxies that are out there. And then you have the universe that is all the galaxies and the dark space between them that's put on the next page. And so here's where the book stops though. The book stops with the universe. It says this, these, all these big things that we think are huge, they seem smo- so small and so compacted whenever you're looking at things that are even bigger than that. And then it says that like it ends with the universe. Just think how big the universe is. Now we don't stop there in our house though. We have one final question, even though this is where the book stops. We have one final question that's in our house. And what we say is the universe, the biggest thing that there is. And boys, what do we say? No. No. What's the biggest? God is the biggest. That's right. See, the God of the universe, who is so insanely big, incredibly big, enormously big, so much bigger that we can't even comprehend the power and magnitude of who he is. He's so big. The God that created this universe, listen, became so small for us. In no other religion does a God become so small. It's actually quite the reverse. Small man must ascend to the gods, but not so with the God of the Bible. You look at the God of the Bible, you look at Philippians chapter two, you look at Hebrews chapter two, you look at Hebrews chapter four, you see all these things about this big, enormous God who made himself small and put on human flesh. And look, he did this to enter into our world. And here's the beautiful thing about our God, the beautiful thing about our Jesus is that whenever he enters into this world, he put on the full weight of human flesh, which means that everything that you feel, Jesus felt as well. He was completely human He knew the brokenness of this world. He knows what it feels to feel the full range of your emotions. And so look, he's empathetic with this man. 
This big, big, enormous, huge God became small so that he can feel what you feel. He's empathetic. So when Jesus sighs here, it's not agitation, it's actually empathization. That's a word I think I just made up. He sees, he knows, and he feels what you feel. So look, here, here's what you should take from this part. You can take him anything. You can take him anything. Because he's so, so big, but yet became so small so that he could enter into your world to know exactly what you're going through. Since he's so big, yet became so small and knows exactly what this life felt like, you can take him anything. There's nothing that overwhelms him. All of your junk, all of your mess, all the stuff that's going on inside of you, the things that you hate about yourself, the things that keep continuing to go on and on in your life, Jesus is saying, I'm not, it's not too small. I'm not too small. You can bring it to me. I can feel what you feel. I know what it's like. I understand. I've experienced the brokenness. And I can hold it all. But not only is Jesus personable, and not only is he empathetic, he's also capable, y'all. He's capable. We see this in verses 34 through 35. So looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply, and he said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were open, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. So look, we can be personable. We can. We can be personable. We can enter into each other's lives and we can, at times, express being personable. We can be empathetic. There's times that other people feel what we have felt at another point in time and we can, uh, we can associate ourselves with them. We can kind of put ourselves on the same playing field. We can know in some sense what they're going through. But we're not always capable. We're not always capable. But Jesus is. Jesus takes the man aside. He communicates with sign. He empathizes. And then he heals. Ephaphtha. Be opened. If you take the original language here, what it actually would say is the chain of his tongue was broken. Jesus liberates the man. He liberates him. Again, try to put yourself in this man's shoes. This is all he knows. And it probably feels impossible that life will ever be different. All he knows is this brokenness. All he knows is that people know him because of his faults, of his flaws, Deaf 
and mute are all that he's ever known. And so he's probably thinking, this is just the way things are going to be for me. You ever felt that about yourself too? The struggle that I have in my life, this thing that I hate about myself, it's the only thing I've ever known. And I guess this is just who I am. You ever felt that? Well, look, Jesus flips this man's script because there's some things that only Jesus is capable of healing. And after Jesus heals the man, the crowds respond. In verse 37, they were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, there's something very, very specific that's going on here, all right? So what Mark is actually doing is he's making a reference to the Old Testament. He's making a reference to this prophet named Isaiah, specifically verse, or chapter 35. So Mark is doing this intentionally because he's trying to reveal to us who Jesus is, who his identity is. In Isaiah 35, it's speaking of the promised Messiah. And here's what verses four through six say. It says, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then look at this, verse five. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So there's a couple of connections that we need to make to this chapter, Isaiah 35, from what we have in our story here in Mark chapter 7. So the scene in Isaiah 35 is happening in a place called Lebanon. Lebanon is this place in Isaiah 35, but in Jesus' day, guess where it is? It's Tyree and Sidon, the exact place that Jesus is stepping in and bringing healing to this deaf and mute man. Then you also have this one word that happens in verse 32. It's called maglalis. It's only used one other time in all of the Bible. And guess where it happens? Isaiah 35, verse 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So look, here's what Mark is doing. Mark is, it's like Mark through his writing, he's trying to grab us by the shoulders. He's trying to shake us, look us in the eyes and say, look who this is. Look who this man is. Look who Jesus is. It's the Messiah. It's the one that we've been waiting for. This is him. He's the one that brings the healing. He's the one who's capable and not just physical healing. That's not what Mark is trying to say here. That what he's trying to point back to with Isaiah 35 is there's something even bigger than just the physical healing that's happening. He's saying there's holistic healing that's come to you. There's holistic healing, including your own souls. Now look, Isaiah 35, 4 says this. Here's your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. So with Jesus comes God's retribution. 
all right? But one pastor puts it like this. Jesus doesn't come wielding God's retribution. He comes to bear it. This is good news for us. This is such good news. Because here's what this means. Jesus, being fully God, fully man, living perfectly, came not to wield God's retribution towards other people, but he came to bear it, meaning the very thing that you and I deserve, this punishment for our sin, Jesus came to bear it for us. That's, what's he, that's what he's doing here in Isaiah 35, in Mark chapter 7. Mark's pointing these things together, and he's saying, look, this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's fulfilling Isaiah 35. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's coming to put this whole broken world back together again. And I'm doing it by performing this wonder in front of you by healing this deaf and mute man. I'm showing you that I'm him. I'm the one. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that can finally step in and do what you could not do for yourself. And he does this for us. And like the deaf and mute man, you may look at your life and think, I guess this is just the way I'll always be. Before Jesus enters into his world, I guess this is just who I am. But Jesus looks at us and he says, no, I'm capable. I'm capable. This thing that you feel is insurmountable in your life, not only am I personable, not only am I empathetic, but look, I am capable of healing that very thing that's going on inside of you. And I deal with your deepest need first. I deal with your sin issue. And then look, your physical healing may not happen in this life, but there's something called the resurrection that's coming, that whenever I come back again, you get a perfect body. I'm coming back. I'm bringing the heavens down to earth. No more tears, no more pain, none of the hardship. Everything's put back together again, including you. And you feel the remnants even now. And he does this all because he's capable. Look, he's capable of flipping your narrative too. These things that you feel may, that may be insurmountable in your life. Because we can look at Mark chapter seven and we see what he does in flipping the deaf and mute man's narrative. He can flip yours too. There's nothing beyond his control. He's capable Jesus is personable, he's empathetic, he's capable. Now here's what we are to do with this. Draw near to him. Draw near to him. Take the Bible's promises for what they are. Draw near to your God. Draw near to Jesus. He's Everything that we want, I, I'm, we want to be understood, right? We want to be understood. And Jesus is saying, I do. I enter into your world. I see everything that's gone on in your life. I know how to meet you where you're at. I know how to feel what you feel. And then he's capable. So look, draw near. Draw near to him. The second one may seem a little weird. Um, but stick with me. Join a group. Get in a community. 
All right, so hear me out on this. Joining a group takes you from, being, from the place of being a bystander to a part of a body. I'm getting all this from my best buddy, Tim Keller. In a body, you experience how personably Jesus is met with others individually. All right? So here's how TK puts it. That's what I call him because we're best buds. When you come to Sunday service, you hear what the preacher sees about Jesus. You hear what I see in Jesus, or you hear whoever else is standing here, how Jesus has ministered to them personably that week. We, we bring these things to you from the pulpit, trying to bring you the best representation of what we can, of what we see of Jesus here in the Bible. But you're hearing just one man, what one man has experienced from Jesus. Just one man. The pastor, TK, relates it to this close group of friends um, who are famous authors, all right? So it's the Inkling. It's kind of a silly name, but you have C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and then Charles Williams, all right? So he tells this story, or he's speaking, like it's C.S. Lewis is actually speaking here. So Charles Williams um, died, one of their best friends. He died, and um, here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about this loss. Not only did I lose Charles Williams, but I lost that part of J.R.R. Tolkien, that only Charles Williams can bring out. Instead of having more of J.R.R. Tolkien to myself, I had less. Why is this the case? He doesn't have to split time with Charles now. He's saying, when I lost Charles and when J.R.R. lost Charles, there was something that only Charles could bring out in both of us when we are around one another, and when we lost Charles, I not only lost Charles, but I lost that part of J.R.R. that only Charles could bring out as well. And here's the connection. You need community because if you want to know how personable Jesus is, if you want to know how empathetic Jesus is, if you want to know how capable Jesus is, it's more than just your narrow view. If you want to know how big and mighty and marvelous your Jesus is, then you get into community because then you get to see just how personable Jesus is. Because whenever you open up your Bible, he ministers to you, but he meets each of us where we're at. And so when we read the same passage together, he's going to minister to somebody else's heart differently than how he's going to minister to your heart. And whenever we bring that out and we talk about it and we discuss it and we share things that are going on in our life and how Jesus has entered into our world and how he's met us and he feels for us and how he's been capable in our life, we get a bigger picture of God. You get to know him more, not because you have him by yourself in your holy little huddle, on your couch, in your chair, on your back porch, wherever it is that you open up your Bible. Whenever you think, when we think that we get alone with Jesus, that we have him all to ourselves, but it's not true. When you want to have more of God, you have to step into community because when you step into community, you get a bigger picture of who he is. So look, step into a group. We have a couple of options. 
We have community groups that meet once a month. This is 100% relational, but we get to talk over food about what God's doing in our life. Then we have discipleship groups that meet the other three weeks of the month. They're smaller iterations of our community groups. So they're three to five men or women, and we're just wrestling through the Bible together, trying to learn our faith. And we literally, we get together, we open up the Bible, we read a passage together, and we discuss it. And as we do it, we get to hear how God is ministering to each other differently. My, the guys in my group have expanded my view of God because of the way that he ministers to them in a text in ways that he's not doing with me. And hopefully I get to bring that whenever I contribute to my group as well. So look, the way to get to know God, it, it's not sacrificing your alone time. You need that with Jesus because he does meet you where you're at. But if you want a bigger, more grand picture of who God is, then you also step into community as well. So you get to know him, see him, experience him, have your view of him expanded by the way that he's ministering personally, empathetically, and capably in other people's lives. So look, join a group. Take it seriously. Show up regularly. When you show up, contribute Come prepared. Come ready to talk. Because you want to know the people that are in the circle with you, but you want to know who God is too. So look, what this whole passage is telling us about Jesus is he's the wonderful counselor. That's why he does everything well. Because everybody feels like they've been seen. They're known and their experience when they're around Jesus. And this story about the deaf, mute man shows us that Jesus is personable, that he's empathetic, and that he's capable, and that he does everything well. So look, draw near to him, and he'll meet you where you're at. And then step into community that your view of who God is and how he ministers larger than just the way that he's doing with you, expands and grows, and you know your God more deeply. Let's pray.